0: Hey everybody, this is episode 6 of Jointly Venturing, the world's only podcast that explores the question of world citizenship, what it actually means, and how we get there. Um, I'm your co-host, Scott Lecky, together with
1: Michael Moorhead. Hello everybody, and uh, we've got an interesting topic for today. Um, world citizenship on our planet and how we may move towards global taxation and how that can be envisaged. Is it a visionary topic? Uh, Is it something that we can really understand or is it something that from our neoliberal perspectives is just going to impose a tax nightmare on more people than are already living under one. So, Scott, um, world citizenship, uh, could you call this our home planet as part of that? Could I call this
0: our home planet? Our
1: home planet?
0: I guess it's the only planet we got, so I guess it's our home planet.
1: And look, I want to... I want to put to you and to our listeners um, that, you know, there's two ways of looking at our home planet. There is the normal way and there is the natural way. And the natural way, um, you look, it's an organic systems perspective. It's the same way as you look at an orca or a dog or, you know, a lion. Um, you know, you look at it as uh, an organic living thing and, and we can look at our planet like that. Um, Gaia Theory, James Lovelock has you know really clearly articulated that and obviously it's been part of uh, indigenous culture for millennia. Um, are we all really just indigenous to our planet? I mean, is it a welcome to planet? as it is a welcome to country? And if it is a welcome to planet, has that what sort of rights has that planet got? to benefit from the profits that are made by exploiting it and this is the difference between doing something to the planet which I believe should incur a tax and doing something for the planet which I believe should be the recipient of that taxed bounty and I'm starting to think in a normal way if we had a normal tax system say Australia's tax system then applied to the planet it would be a disaster. If we look at it from a more natural perspective then um, the tax system would be funding a bureaucracy that would restrain and perhaps even punish those that did too much to the planet and it would be funding doing things for the planet but this this is an approach to the planet that's a living approach this is not a carbon credits approach a carbon credit approach where you are calculating say an emissions trading scheme so that you know a mine here can be offset against a A forest there. Um, It's not quite the same as an indigenous person, as we all are, if you accept what I've said just now. I mean, we're all indigenous to the planet. You know, uh, the planet's biodiversity and every living tree, every living thing is part of our ecosystem. To what extent should we be saying that it should be the planet? that has legal personhood. And that it should be the planet that has the entitlement to tax. That's a very different way of looking at taxation than, than what's currently being looked at by the bureaucrats at the UN. Scott, what's your view on that perspective? It's, um, if you like, it's been um, uh, Eisenstein's books have looked at it from that perspective, Derek Jensen, the Deep Green activist perspective, is look look after uh, what you've got in your own land base and protect your own land base, like protect the river, protect the forest, protect the ocean. And the planet can look after itself if humans are doing their part at a local level. So when we're starting to talk about global organisation and a global political structure, then is that political structure going to be doing things to the planet or for the planet? And I'd like to say doing things to the planet is normal. It's a normal neoliberal approach. We've been doing things to the planet. Hardcore, since wars, fossil fuels, um, have really brought us to the point where We've got to start thinking about doing things for the planet. But can we do that when the taxation systems are, by definition, neoliberal, by definition they're saying, this particular thing has a dollar value, it is X. If that goes up in value, then we're going to tax you Y. Now, one way of looking at this is the universal basic income. Okay? If we were to say, look, let's take the commodification out of humanity, out of being human and let's give every human a basic income, then there's no need for that human to uh, exploit the planet. As much as if we're saying, look, sorry, you're homeless and if you don't work in the Philippines for some multinational in a, in a city slum for hardly any money, well, then you, you're not even going to survive. I mean, so universal basic income, and criminalising environmental vandalism. Can you allow, in this day and age, can we allow, for example, the Adani mine? I mean, it just seems ridiculous. Why is neoliberalism masking this as if it's a fait accompli? Uh, Has democracy funded by taxation? Has democracy actually morphed into some sort of creature only serves the rich or is a global democracy going to have some bigger principles doing things for others and not to them treating humans as part of the biodiversity this is how I'd like to start thinking about global taxation and and in particular global sovereignty I mean this is our home planet and How we envisaged the planet as a living thing is going to have a big impact on how we commodify it, if we commodify it. And um, what are your thoughts on that as a perspective? You know, the difference between the normal way of doing things to something for profit as opposed to um, what I'm saying is the natural way of doing something or someone or something.
0: Well, there's a huge number of issues in uh, what you just said, but let's start with the simple proposition that there are 7.5 billion plus fellow human beings alive today on planet Earth, all of whom rode here on the historical shoulders of approximately 100 billion humans who have ever lived on this planet without exception every single one of whom was ultimately dependent on the planet and the things that grow there and the things that exist there Um, that's a simple fact but one that is all too rarely thought about by people alive today not just the past but the present that we are all 100 percent dependent upon planet earth for our existence and most certainly that of generations to come. Um, And yet we act as if we live in an infinite ecological system where everything that we exploit ultimately has no end. And we live in that manner. And our systems of politics are designed um, based on such a way of interpreting things.
1: Do you mean... Infinite growth, that infinite growth paradigm where there has to be growth or there's a recession. Is that what you're talking Ultimately, about? Ultimately,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, that's okay. one aspect of it. So, yeah. you know, uh, the, from clearest, economics perspective, yeah, the clearest, yeah. easiest way to uh, look at that particular question, obviously, is, you know, we all live on planet Earth. It's 40,000 kilometers or what have you in circumference, right? It's a measurable, finite space with a finite amount of resources, and yet our economic system is predicated on never-ending growth. And anything that's not growth is seen as a highly negative thing. You know, in economic terms, they call it a recession or a depression, or worse, it's going backwards, it's declining levels of standard of living, it's greater poverty, etc. So the entire system is predicated on the infinite perpetuation of growth within a finite system which is already at its core highly irrational and and ultimately illogical and and at the end of the day bound to fail. And
1: and perhaps also um, working for greater inequality. I, I mean, if one buys into the notion of infinite growth, one's also buying into that neoliberal paradigm where humans themselves are commodities. And the moment that happens, then democracy is going to result in, this is from my perspective, democracy is gonna result in lower taxes for the corporates, less welfare for the populace. And we're going to see the trading Of uh, infrastructure in countries for debt as part of that neoliberal World Bank system. Because without that creation of obligation, then we don't have any of the importing and exporting that we rely on. We rely on being blind to that. We rely on not knowing what it's like to. Work in a Philippines call center. We rely on not knowing what it's like to um, be producing clothing in Bangladesh. We don't see that in it. We're not looking at our own first world countries and seeing that sort of work being done. So we're actually exporting, externalizing our lifestyle and calling it infinite growth, when everybody knows that that's not possible on our home planet. So it sounds like you're agreeing with me at that level. I wonder how we're going to, though, overcome that, um, the blindness we have to this as a society that's enthralled with the celebrity culture and the new car thing you know how are we going to disengage from that how are we going to transition back to a doing for rather than a doing to and and, and look I call it a natural way of being um, the natural way of being opposed to the normal way of being and is it a person by person thing is it a country by country thing Or is it something we can aspire to at a global level? And that would mean universal basic incomes. And that would mean actually no more fossil fuels actually being um, mined and produced. There would be no more coal mines. There'd be existing coal mines while we transition out of it, but there wouldn't be any new coal mines anywhere. And... Are we going to get to the point where the planet has an environmental understanding such that the um, the BHPs and the Adanis of today actually become the criminals of tomorrow? Are we going to have uh, environmental laws that actually work or are we going to have environmental laws that give coal miners, licences to pollute? Are we going to have environmental laws that give uh, deep sea, like, for example, the um, Antarctic Living Marine Resources? Are we going to have environment laws that licence the taking of the fish in Antarctica? Are we going to have environmental laws that effectively say yes to doing things to the planet? Or are we going to have environmental laws that say you're going to be punished for doing things to the planet. And that's a big shift. That's a really, really big shift. Uh, I I think it was Uruguay had a, um, you know, wanted to save some forests. There's fossil fuels under it. They wanted to raise some money. Ecuador. Was it Ecuador? They couldn't raise the money. I mean, isn't this what a global tax should be doing? Now, how do we do that? Should it be a tax on every transaction? I mean, a tax on every transaction, a tax on every financial transaction that then is not used for financial transactions would do it, but a tax on every financial transaction that is then just used as part of some, you know, of some surreal growth paradigm, that's the last tax system we want applied to the planet. So when we're talking about, you know, natural taxation, is it recovering the costs that we need to design how we live on the planet? Are we going to be able to recover the costs of what has been done to our home planet and use that to start doing things for our home planet? And can we do that using the existing political structures? Look, I would say we can't because the neoliberals like, And when do we ever hear the word neoliberal to describe our system? When it's patently obviously uh, uh, based on infinite growth. It simply can't continue. But we don't hear much criticism from within our culture. And I think that's because we're just generally all too tied up in being normal. So there is a lot to be said for moving towards a more natural perspective. And that natural perspective um, I think you can, you know, you can use in your everyday life. I mean, how are you going to do things today? Are you going to be doing things to others? Or are you going to be doing things for others? And what sort of reward do you want for it? And if you're doing things to others, then you should be paying for that privilege. And that, and that money should be going towards helping others. So I don't, I don't think we can really design a, a sort of a global tax system that's got anything at all to do with neoliberalism at all. And we need to rethink what we want from our, uh, our economic cycles. Do we want to uh, actually rely on... Uh, the the next depression the next recession or do we want to live in a more harmonious way i mean is is neoliberalism relying on just one crisis after another to distract us while every last drop of this planet is ringed out or are we going to kind of look look just enough enough with treating humans as a commodity enough with treating trees as something to be cut down and coal to be dug up, just enough. Can we just recognize that we are all the indigenous, as you put it so beautifully at the start of this, Scott? I mean, we rely on this planet. And, you know, wouldn't it be nice to think that the planet could rely on us? Well,
0: there's a, there's a advertisement on TV every so often that but I think World Fund for Nature, Worldwide Fund for Nature, which simply says, you know, um, we need nature, nature doesn't need us. And, you know, that is basically true. You know, in the last week, last two weeks, there's been a conference, uh, the Conference of Parties number 24, on the Paris Climate Agreement, at which David Attenborough essentially said to all the delegates that we have effectively 10 years to sort ourselves out when it comes to the effects of climate change or else civilization itself will be under imminent threat and possible demise um so you know ultimately the question becomes is the economic system that's completely reliant on the taking for free of natural products and turning them into commodities and then consumer products that people have artificial desires created for, that creates a flow of endorphins in their system when they consume them. That is essentially the economic system that we have. Is that going to simply just go on for another 10 years until people finally realize there's actually no other way to move forward other than shifting the, the, the goalposts entirely and, and creating an entirely new system? Um, or are they just going to keep consuming and, until the bitter end? Essentially,
1: well, uh, and
0: that's uh, really that's really you know ultimately what it all comes down to. And maybe that sounds too alarmist, etc. But you know, the IPCC itself speaks of a twelve-year time window that we have. We have until twenty thirty to put rules in place to stop um, global warming and reduce global temperatures to levels that are at least manageable.
1: Can a I of- can I just interrupt there? I don't see it like that, Scott. I, I- I don't accept the climate change speak. Um, If we had a planet that was covered in forests, then our planet would be able to uh, live through global warming. If we've got a planet that's covered in concrete, it is not going to live through global warming. And to say that global warming is somehow climate change is somehow the problem is, it falls into a, a neoliberal trap, in my view. The, the trap is this. Uh, no, the problem is that coal mine, that forest, that amount of ships, that amount of planes, that amount of swamp draining... That amount of humans with absolutely no chance in life, that amount of inequality, they're the things to me that cause climate change, not some um, you know, parts per million in the air. Uh, parts per million in the air is a measure, but it's not a solution.
0: It's a big, big part of the equation.
1: And, Definitely you know, part of the equation. Big but, part of the equation. Uh, so, okay. So, what do you give? What do you measure? What's the climate change measurement of the Adani coal mine? I mean, what is the figure that it will contribute to parts per million?
0: Well, I don't know the statistics. No one of that can know particular. Point, no one right? can know. Okay. Well, what it ultimately comes down to is, you know, if we stick only to the question of climate change for a moment, sure. you know, the vast majority of countries, left wing, right wing, progressive, authoritarian, etc., um, all have policies in place which are more or less in line with the Paris Agreement of 2015 and previous agreements Yep. to keep the temperature under 1.5 degrees Celsius for what, increases for what reason? what And parts per million under, or at least what to continue to neoliberal
1: e- economy. It's one
0: piece of a much larger, an uh, international environmental puzzle. But we okay. can just focus exclusively on climate change for a moment, and
1: yes, I definitely accept. The that. point
0: is that the vast majority of scientists know and believe that the cause of climate change is the economic system that we've chosen to have for the past 200 years, since the beginning of the industrial age and the burning of fossil fuels. That is the anthropogenic cause of the climate change that we are going through right now. And what tragically happened in the meeting in Poland is that five countries essentially Paid lip service to that agreement, but more or less turned their back on it and said, "We're going to continue to burn coal. We're going to continue to to pull as much oil out of the ground as we possibly can. We're going to promote environmentally destructive technologies. We're going to continue to you know deforestation. We are going to award, reward our fossil fuel industries, our corporations, give them all sorts of incentives. And those were you know the United States, the only country that's attempting to pull out formally from the uh, Paris Agreement. Um, it was uh, uh, grouped together with Russia and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia; those four countries, with the tacit acceptance of, and the fifth country being Australia. So those five countries are essentially attempting to undermine, you know, the efforts of, you know, quite literally millions upon millions of people who realize that when it comes specifically to climate change, it's one problem of of a whole series of problems, Um, they are not really willing to push things forward in the direction that we all comprehensively need to go in order to tackle a problem, which will ultimately affect every human being alive today, every single country in place, and will result in particular in the displacement of quite literally hundreds of millions of people with nowhere to go and... No international agency to look after them, and certainly no budget anywhere to pay for them well, so to,
1: say India, for example, okay mm-hmm. and um I'd rather use an Australian example, but just India it lots of little uh family plots growing local vegetables using local seeds those communities are replaced with uh, just the one crop using imported technology and those people are displaced and moved to the city that used to live in the country. Okay. Now, does that have an adverse effect on global warming? And if the answer to that is yes, which I believe it probably is, but you know I can't give it a figure. And this is where the neoliberal thing really annoys me. I can't say, okay, the large-scale movement of rural India to the cities and the replacement of that countryside on that countryside of monocultural crops using genetically modified seeds and pesticides. I cannot say that that has a parts per million impact on our atmosphere. But I do believe that it has an impact on the ability of the planet to withstand global warming and increased parts per million. And so are we going to see the answer? I mean, I would say we're not going to see the answer in the normal way of doing things. We're going to have to look at a more natural way of being on the planet and that's what tax should be paying for. We should not, our taxes should not be subsidising the very corporations that are refusing to understand the externalities of their profit-making. And this is a 1% issue. This is a democracy fueled by neoliberalist philosophy, which is going to result in Uh, are 1% who hold most of the wealth and the rest of humanity who are commodities. They are commodities because they are consumers. And what they consume is going to be manufactured in the places where there is the least attention to the environment. And that's why Australia is a quarry today. I mean, it's a quarry. That's why Australia has sold its infrastructure to the neoliberal banking system and that's why we don't have it anymore. I mean, our tax paid for it originally and then it was sold to fund our foreign debt. It was. And that's how the trade agreements are working around our country and this is around our planet and this is why populist politics... Uh, which just thrives on crisis after crisis. And the war, war on what? It's, you know, it's the war on the earth, really, isn't it? I mean, at the moment, neoliberal Western capitalism is waging a war on earth. Wouldn't it be nice to wage a war on war? I mean, are we just having these little test wars just to test out our new equipment? Or... Should we be focusing on allocating the resources that are spent on that to how we can actually start to live within our biological means? Was that what David Attenborough was saying?
0: I think he was just making the you know the the point that people really need to realize that they themselves are essentially part of nature and that everything that they do in their lives ultimately comes from nature. And unless you have a natural approach to organizing yourselves um, politically, then sooner or later you want to hit a brick wall and, you know, all sorts of things can fall apart in ways that we don't even really want to contemplate, you know? So, but let's just look at the factual situation today when it comes to the current economic system that we have before us and remember that you know last year whether it's a good measurement or not it is the measurement that's widely used so we're going to use it um gross domestic product global gross domestic product collectively is about 87 trillion dollars oh no spare me spare
1: me spare me the neoliberal figures let's
0: look at what the debt levels are
1: oh why why Why? For countless reasons. because give me what?
0: Well, because they are three to four times higher than the global GDP. Okay. Right? Okay. And guess what? The power brokers in the world that have allowed that debt to be generated for the benefit largely of the powerful uh, classes in the world are not going to turn their back on those who simply decide not to pay it. And it well, is, is if the, there's any is... sort of harbinger for yes. yep. global economic crisis on. at levels far worse than the Great Depression of the 1930s, um, then it's this. And, you know, continuing to raise that number of 87 trillion up to 91 trillion, up to 98 trillion, and the debt level up to 400 trillion, and on and on it goes, you know, imagine, sooner or imagine later. Imagine
1: the austerity.
0: Imagine not just the austerity. What I imagine is the, you know, severe social conflict that will occur. And, you know, read any dystopian novel, look at any dystopian movie, and it's almost always preceded in the storyline by, you know, severe economic collapse, right? But
1: but there is no reason why debt cannot be forgiven. And... The forgiveness of debt is like a universal basic income. The forgiveness of debt is very similar to that. The forgiveness of debt to debt, for just South America is a good, op, a good example. Um, South American countries are, are in enormous debt. And if they don't export raw product, then those debts can't be repaid. The interest on those debts can't be repaid. Now, that has to stop. That is driving global warming. I mean, that is saying we don't really need the Amazon forest. You have to pay back a debt. Now, debt forgiveness is not the normal thing.
0: To say the least.
1: But it is the natural thing.
0: It can occur, but it will never occur at levels that would eradicate the current levels of global debt. There's no question, because obviously the entire system would then fall apart and you start from scratch. I mean, you know, there are some people that favor that approach. You know, if you take the view of the planetary ecologists, uh, oh, well, well, yes, you know, yes, and that, you know, in an, an ideal steady state, sustainable, regenerative level of Global population should be around 1 billion maximum. Oh, right. Well, Uh, it depends on the design. On the situation today, well, there's a lot lot of people that use that figure, right, from in the planetary ecology circles. Um, And look at what the situation is today of, you know, 7.5 billion.
1: Carrying capacity is a question of design. Um, And, uh, you know, there there obviously should be, our, our best minds should be focusing on what that capacity is. there's There's a difference between 7 billion who are consuming and doing things to the planet and 7 billion who are doing things for the planet. There's a big difference. And that's the difference that I think we're missing in the perspective that we have as consumers in a neoliberal society.
0: Yeah, but at the same time, I mean, we, you know, it's it serves no purpose to like look backwards in history and say everybody should live as if they, you know, as they lived, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago because they were in quotes, you know, living in a sustainable manner, right? I mean, that's just not only unrealistic, it's just, you know, it's naive beyond belief. I mean, you have to look forward and you have Indeed. to Indeed. you have to think of the place where we are at today, with you know thousands upon thousands of nuclear weapons pointed in every direction, um, you know, by all the nuclear weapons-holding countries, that you know, climate change is a very real risk, that global debt levels are extremely, extremely threateningly high levels, you know, that the global population is at an but, extremely well, but, high level. Um, look, so interesting,
1: you I, mentioned weapons of mass destruction because their value lies in them not being used.
0: Well, to a certain extent. Yeah. And,
1: and there are things that shouldn't be done. What we need to know and what we need to collectively determine is where we draw the line. Now, I'm not saying to draw that line back in pre-industrial Hawaii or Tahiti or somewhere. Little suburban gardens are beautiful as we know. We try, most humans try for that beautiful suburban garden. But there is so much more in front of us than just that. For example, we don't have to travel by plane, we can actually travel as holograms or we can have got the perfect, haven't we got, the perfect meeting technology with our screens. We can virtually experience all sorts of things. Yet plane travel is a huge contributor to the doing to the planet, and it's getting cheaper and cheaper. Okay, shouldn't the tax system be taxing that
0: Well, or we invent a plane that doesn't use fossil fuels and achieves the same objective. It allows people to go across the world um, in a non-polluting manner. I mean, that's the direction I would go. I think it's, you know, we have no hope of creating a, a oneness world scenario unless more people have direct personal experience with people from all corners of the earth. There's no question about it.
1: But that you know, does it would be wonderful if it was possible nec- without it doesn't necessarily but, have to contribute to global warming that process no, well, it doesn't, doesn't? no I of mean, course not I mean okay. you but you
0: know there's there's no alternative really you know, I wish there was you know i mean I'm speaking of as someone who has traveled very extensively um across the planet for decades um so you know i'm obviously speaking of it from a subjective point of view but you know there's there's certainly no no way i would think in the ways that i do now had i not engaged directly with people from quite literally every planet on earth every sorry every country on earth yes you know over decades after decades after decades of experience so you know, I, I really, really firmly believe that people have to have more direct personal interaction with people from different cultures and religions and age groups and income levels and, and you know, weather systems and geographical locations, etc etc. So, you know, I'd be, you know, yes, you can do a lot through a screen, but it's never really the same, you know. So let's invent a plane. You know, we have electric cars now they're not that widespread but you know they're working it's going to happen sooner or later driverless electric cars will be ubiquitous before too long let's have i don't know about pilotless but they're talking about that but you know let's have electric slash solar planes that uh get people you know across the world in a non-polluting way and you know promote international harmony um that way and so you know back to the tax question you know yes. someone's going to have to pay for all this and you know the we cannot expect realistically as much as we want might want it you know a shift overnight from the 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 very strong capitalistic system that we have in place now to something you know fundamentally different that will inevitably take time and you know hopefully we do have enough time and
1: well for that, example for example he, he let me run this one past you just say that um the the UNCC determines that there should be um, uh, a tax on the production of fossil fuels. And that would be a taxation that would operate across the planet. And it would be like a royalty on every tonne of coal that's mined. What should the money thereby raised go towards?
0: Well, inventing a inventing a solar plane would be one place it could go, you know. But it could go towards, you know, planting a trillion trees or all sorts of measures that are, you know, designed to reduce climate change consequences and to, you know, build a more sustainable world. I mean, we could think of thousands of things it should go towards. You it, know? We could
1: tax every plane but, seat.
0: But it's not just every taxing. Every plane seat. You, well, you can you know that's already been proposed, yep. you know, yep. for decades. The yep. the famous Tobin tax, sure. you know, which could have raised many many billions of dollars, but mm. once again, it was never um, accepted. There's a whole range of different tax proposals. Ne- Neo-liberal
1: politics is anti is the anti of such taxes. Neoliberal politics externalizes the costs and pockets the profits and from what I can tell from reading economists that process has to result in inequality
0: well at ever-growing levels of inequality and you know it's not that complicated to to develop a global taxation system. Which is built along the lines of the, the taxation system that we have now. Um, so there's a tax on consumption.
1: Yep.
0: There's a tax on income. There's Why a, tax would there on,
1: be a tax on income.
0: That, well, we'll come to that in a minute. For there's example, a tax on
1: consumption,
0: on capital gains, and there's a tax on various transactions, and there's a wealth tax. So, put those five forms of taxes together, as well as other resource-related taxes, and I think there's more than enough capacity to generate the revenue required to solve many, if not all, of the most pressing problems in the world today. But it will never solve low consciousness-based thinking. It will Mm. never solve hatred by one ethnic group against another. It will never solve looked, outright money, discrimination. I mean, so that's also where we neo, have to put our energies.
1: Yeah, but you the know? neoliberal promise is that money does solve everything. And it clearly doesn't. Well, we know that it doesn't, yeah. obviously. you know, We've I never mean, had
0: a more unequal world than we have today. I mean, in the United States, 0.1% of the population controls 90% of all assets. You know so there you go, and that country tends to have more influence globally on the economic structures we follow than any other at the moment you know that and that's changing, and their position is declining, but nonetheless you know quite influential so you know we've built a global economic system, so bearing in mind those five or six different types of taxation, you yep. know right now it's still possible to anonymously incorporate a company in a whole range of different countries without ever showing your passport, without ever giving any sort of identification, calling the company a name different than your own personal name, which then opens up a bank account in any number of tax havens and ultimately results in the person slash company opening up those accounts um, being outside the jurisdiction of whatever tax system they should be under the jurisdiction of. It's, it's, the system is totally designed to favor those with access to large amounts of capital. So it's simple to set up an anonymous company. It's simple to go to a tax haven. It's simple to hold money in tax havens that is out of reach from the tax authorities. No one knows what the true number is of money held in tax havens today, but the lowest estimate I've seen is $1.3 trillion dollars. Um, with other estimates going into 3 4 5 trillion dollars which means losses of tax revenue under the current system granted of many and many hundreds of billions of dollars you know and in the overall scheme of things when you think of 87 trillion dollars gdp you know 2 to 500 600 800 billion well, i would is not I a lot. look
1: look that's it's, but it's a
0: lot that's missing yeah, you know we could solve global homelessness with less than 20 billion dollars right now So let's just think of that one issue. You know, we're talking about a huge, gigantic issue. There's no one spending money on it now. So let's at least, as a beginning, first step before we go into, you know, blissful futures, let's start using the systems that we have, the international legal structures that we have, which are incredibly evolved and incredibly incredibly developed, and get people to realize that, you know, in the first instance, there should be no tax havens available to anyone anywhere anytime start with that every corporation should be linked to an individual human being and no one should be able to arbitrarily hide money fourthly no there should be an end we must put an end to uh the race to the bottom when it comes to global taxation well, on corporations you, right what? and that it, that's a really really linchpin sort of yeah. issue yeah as long as there's even one country that's willing to give large corporations a 0% tax rate, the system will never be truly fair and equitable. And there've been calls recently by Germany. Um, you know, you don't get more capitalistic than Germany, um, to have a global minimum tax on large, um, tech companies, such as Facebook, Google, and others that place themselves, um, in the lowest tax jurisdictions. And so All of those are very real, concrete, practical types of things that can be done now under the current system as we hopefully, you know, transition to something much more regenerative in nature that allows people to have comfortable lives collectively across the board, seven and a half billion of us, without doing irreparable damage to the planet that we're all completely dependent upon, right? And there are so many factors at play in, in, you know, approaching that sort of scenario that it, you know, it will never be easy. And you mentioned the question of ultimately, you didn't say this word, but uh, urbanization, you know, the the increased rural urban exodus that's taking place all around the world. You know, I mean, the world is now about 54% urban. It's, it made the shift from a rural world to an urban world about five, 10 years ago. And if current trends continue, it will never, ever go backwards. We will never have a rural majority anymore. And part of the reason we are seeing populism and neo-nationalism, etc., also stems from the fact that all power is tending to concentrate ever more in, in the growing cities of the world. The individuals who live there at the same time are becoming more and more divorced from nature, And yet are equally reliant upon it, even though they see themselves completely as apart from it instead of a part of it, you know. And those trends are going to also exacerbate, obviously, um, uh, things, problems such as climate change. Even though cities only occupy a very small percentage of the the land surface of the planet, um, they consume the lion's share of the resources and certainly get the vast majority of the investments. And it's not simply a question of oh that's good because rural rural areas then are becoming freed up of people and you know forests are returning and therefore you know climate change is being reversed. That's true to a certain degree, but at a much larger scale, the amount of land that's that's officially declared as degraded and no longer capable of regenerating itself in the in the same way that it was before it was exploited is measured in the. I think, hundreds of millions of acres across the world. It's a huge, huge portion of all the world's land surface that was once mined or once deforested or once polluted and made toxic, uh, so on and so forth. So, you know, once again, it's an ever-reducing land base that can be used um, as the basis for regenerating ecological, you know, developments in a positive direction. And, you know, recent developments by the government of the new government of Brazil... You know, they're basically going to open up the Amazon, you know. After so many decades of people fighting to say, don't cut it down, you know, um, they simply see it as an economic resource.
1: And aren't they forced into that by their debt position? I mean, if the creditor nations and World Bank were to say, we forgive your debt so long as you don't chop down any more of the Amazon, isn't that the sort of dialogue that we could expect
0: i mean you could do that that's what ecuador did essentially you know yeah. ecuador agreed not to chop down big parts of its rainforest in exchange for you know favorable treatment by the international economic community so yeah things of that nature could occur mm-hmm. if you have reasonable parties on all sides but you don't always have reasonable parties on all sides i mean Look at the uh, amount of opposition in Australia to the Adani mine, which is the issue, the environmental issue in Australia at the moment. You know, massive amounts mm. of opposition to it from all sides, and yet it still continues, and there's still going to be this massive coal mine in Queensland. Oh, we Queensland. can we can
1: bring it even you closer know? to home. <coughs> uh, we can look at the the wetland at Toorook and the freeway, right? And we can identify right away, that draining that swamp will allow for the development of more suburban homes. Uh, putting a freeway through the middle of it will connect up outer and inner Melbourne in a way that would make a lot of people wealthy. Mm-hmm. And draining that swamp would deny you know, a large area of any opportunity to have a a proper carbon sink well, and, and a as buffer.
0: Well, yeah, the habitat uh, for birds, etc., And
1: yeah. a buffer against the normal. I mean, the natural needs a buffer against the normal. And, um, you know, while there is the economic incentive to extract and externalise the environmental cost, then that's what's going to keep happening. So I, I guess... To put it in a nutshell, what I'm saying is why can we not have our home planet as sovereign in itself so that any resource extraction attracts a global royalty and that royalty then helps to manage and police the extraction
0: and who's the royalty paid to that
1: in this should, scenario that in this scenario it would be a um, like a police force an environmental police force
0: like an international environmental authority uh, of some sort
1: one would hope it could be a global democracy
0: i mean there would be essentially the de facto ministry of environment of a future democratically chosen world parliament yes slash government
1: look it would be the land use and planning
0: right Mm -hmm. and you know that that raises the whole issue of you know which a lot of people raise with me in my discussions you know around the world with with so many different people about um the issues that we discuss on this podcast and you know one of the there's a tremendous amount of support in the first instance which is a really good thing to you know report a lot of people are really yearning for this you know to have a new improved more evolved more empathetic more compassionate global system in place that is something so much better than what we have currently been able to do you know so that's a really positive thing but there's a nice solid level of skepticism also um and that's great because you know we have to have as many skeptics and devil's advocates as possible in order to you know, develop and discuss issues that eventually become sort of models for institutions and things like that. And obviously one of the great doubts is how do we actually really even have a a so-called world government?
1: Um, Look, the neoliberal version is, is it not, that if it's profitable, then it must be good. Yeah. Yeah? Okay. Okay. Don't, we just need to flip that a little bit, don't we? I mean, it needs to be, if it's good, then it must be profitable. And, you know... Well, maybe who it's a is redefinition of
0: what profit means.
1: Yeah, and, yeah, indeed. And who is to determine what is good? I mean, David Attenborough and the celebrity, you know, that he brings to the issue um, is lovely, but it's not, a, it's not actually a designed solution for uh, any particular development. And you know, just the word development sort of raises like, okay, so more housing, more this, more that, more this. You know, there has to be an enough. Doesn't it have to be like that line in the sand that just goes, look, that's enough? Like, that's enough extraction of coal let's just call a day on that like mm-hmm. that's enough taking of old growth forest um, i think a know. lot of
0: people i think hundreds of millions of people across the planet would totally agree with those and, and can't premises we, no
1: question yeah and can't we sort of have a, a global referendum on that like i know we've spoken about this before and and wouldn't it be nice to to actually generate an opinion poll that could give some meaning to this stuff so that we can identify, look, is leaving something unexploited, is not turning certain things into money a good idea? And what are those things? Um, Well, a lot of people... and And I'm definitely not the font of universal wisdom on this. I have no idea. I mean, I have my own things like, okay, let's not... Let, you know let's make sure that no shark dies for shark fin soup I, I don't know how many people are going to be with me on that but it sort of seems you know unless you've raised that shark from a little baby shark you shouldn't be eating its fin um, I don't know you know I mean it's it's difficult to think about how many possible subjects there could be but if we were to limit ourselves to coal mm-hmm then is there a current political system that can say no, no more extraction of coal? And if there isn't, that's a vacuum that needs to be filled, in my view, and, and, and designed, if possible, in a manner that you know, reflects humans' aspirations
0: well you know the entire economic system that we have is essentially built on oil and gas and coal right so to make the transition i heard uh uh another podcast the other day where someone was mentioning a figure of something like 23 trillion dollars in current money will be required to make the structural transition from a world based on fossil fuels to one that totally exists and and succeeds without them so you know it's a big it's a big expenditure and whether we like the current system or not um that is what we have and it will take expenditure you know in order to make that happen and more and more people simply need to realize that you know keeping it in the ground is far 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 better than pulling it out and that you know we have to remember though at the same time there's a level of fear and you know reticence and reluctance By a large number of people who think that if we do end the era of fossil fuels, that our standards of living will go down dramatically. I mean, you just have to acknowledge that fact. People are really afraid that they're not going to be able to drive hundreds of miles a day, or fly everywhere that they want to go, or eat the amount of meat that they eat, or have as many children as they want to have. All of these things, which contribute, you know, to climate change, etc. If we decide to implement a post-fossil fuel Economy, um, and you know that issue does need to be tackled head on. You know how do we ensure that people's livelihoods and standards of living do not decline dramatically if we do make that switch? And isn't, how do we... isn't it
1: the case though that people's standards of living are declining now? Well, is that what some are for sure? But isn't that what the French yellow shirts are going through? Isn't that what? why we're having populist politicians elected. Now, sitting where you and I sit, it's a bit of an ask, isn't it, to say, well, you know, gee, you guys are doing it tough. I mean, we are driving wherever we want to drive, flying wherever we want to fly. Uh, Would we be able to do that if no fossil fuels... Were ever extracted again, and the problem is that there's no body, there's no polity to enforce that. Now the other side of the coin is saying, let's let's uh, let's tax, let's put a tax on carbon, let's let's somehow create a neoliberal economic structure around this. I mean, what so we can commodify the air? I mean, that is what's going to happen. Let's uh, offset this mine here against that forest there. It's designed to extract. And isn't it possible to have a political organisation that could stop that? Now, it doesn't appear to be anywhere close today, does it? Are we going to be waiting for... Uh, our home planet to stop this for us I mean that's, yeah. that, that sort of Apple ap- vision look. is you know is is, is right
0: very easy to imagine yeah. you know the worst dystopian nightmare becoming true you know across the planet but you know let's look on the bright side for a minute yep. you know I mean there it you know we have to acknowledge that yes you know and I'm an international human rights lawyer so I know what I'm talking about when it comes to human rights violations. Um, there are massive human rights violations in the world. Yes, and there's ongoing conflict in too many countries to count, etc., etc. But there is less international armed conflict now than perhaps at any time in modern history. You know, there are people are living longer now than at any time in human history. Um, we have eradicated a whole range of diseases that used to kill millions of people. A year, and the list goes on. There's a lot of good, positive things that have happened in the world, and we should not discount that. And we should not pretend that somehow those are all evil and horrible. We we, we need to build on that, don't we? We need to build on it. It's not that hard to imagine a world within, like, ten years, even only, where every single house, at least in the advanced countries, the wealthy countries, but hopefully everywhere, has solar panels on the roof. It's not that hard. Five or ten years ago in Australia, it was a handful of houses that had solar panels. Now it's two million households that have solar panels on the roof. And with the proper subsidies and the proper assistance, et cetera, et cetera, and systems in place, people do it. It's not very hard to imagine a future where virtually everybody's driving an electric car that's basically fueled by solar batteries that you have in your garage that are, you know, filled up all day long by your solar panels on your roof. So, I mean, that's a very... Very easy to imagine Isn't it? I mean look look, the the transition
1: right? The transition from a carbon to what is it, photovoltaics. Yeah. That transition. Yeah, and there's
0: other forms now too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's it's so it's very easy to imagine that happening. That's not that's not some pipe dream. It's easier to imagine that happening than an iPhone being held in your hand if you were thinking 15 years ago. Sure. Right? Yeah. So it's also very easy to imagine that some form of flying will be invented. Uh, you know, there's already people experimenting widely with solar wings and planes and stuff like that, where, pe- where people would be able to continue to use planes. You know, there's artificial forms of meat being developed as alternatives to, you know, um, beef and other forms of meat. There's more vegans and vegetarians, I think, in place now in the world than, than ever before, and that's totally growing. And that's largely done out of a motivation to have a more sustainable and healthy planet and the list goes on and um you know so let's not forget that there's a lot of positive movement um and yet and yet we have these countervailing developments as well at the at the same very same period more inequality than ever before greater levels of frustration and anger and feelings of resentment that my life will not improve like my children's did and that manifests itself of course in populism and neo-nationalism etc um, and ongoing conflicts, which are simply looking worse than ever, towards you know farther and farther away from resolution, um, and and so on and so forth. So we really have two sort of simultaneous countervailing forces at play. Um, and added to that fact, there's more. I would say there's more people now than ever before who see the similarities between their fellow humans across the world. There's always the going to
1: there's always going to be it. You know, a yin and a yang, right. Between sure. the normal and the natural, right? Yeah,
0: yeah. But so let's not overemphasize the negative, <coughs> as indeed as easy as, as, easy as that is to indeed. do. And let's, at the same time, not overemphasize, you know, the, the positive but, balance. But but
1: but isn't it the case that a global taxation system that rewards the externalisation of environmental costs is unlikely to be a successful system. Um,
0: I'm not certain of that. Yeah. I'm not certain of that at all. No, mm-hmm. I mean, when, once the, a structure is in place and you have enough people that realise that maybe that particular model of doing things is, is far advantageous to what we're doing now, People will come along. I mean, it happens all the time. It's happened all throughout history. So many things that were accepted as normal, once they were resisted, suddenly became almost overnight in historical terms, completely abnormal and, <laughs> and anathema to normal civilization, whether it's, you know, women being treated as property, you know, Africans in the United States being treated as slaves. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Indigenous people treated as, you know, some expendable thing that needed to be gotten rid of so that the, you know, foreigners could come and exploit the land. The list goes on, you know. So there's a lot of things that have existed and be be seen as normal by the dominant political classes, which once there was enough awareness by enough people, people realized that, Absolutely, astronomically bad things, and they need to change forever. And they eventually did. And yes, we're far from perfect. You know, we're far from reaching the the end point in the process, but we get ever closer. And yes, there are sometimes back steps. There are sometimes these toxic periods, similar to the one we're going through now globally, in many ways. Um, but I firmly believe that they are simply side tracks from a greater trajectory which does expand ever upwards in an evolutionary direction where more and more people realize the, that the wisdom that has been gained throughout the ages is relevant to them, to their very own lives, and that they are indeed part of the greater whole. And they see these incredible similarities between people everywhere. And yes, we have light years to go in so many ways, but in the overall scheme of things, there's small steps made on a daily basis by millions and millions of people, pushing things in the right direction. We just need to speed those steps up a little bit, I think, and uh, have a few more steps um, being made because you know, in, unless we do, we're going to reach a critical ma- a critical point where, you know, reversing it is no longer possible.
1: Well, well, may I ask, so so, so who owns the coal in the ground? At the moment, it's the nation state. Right.
0: I mean, a fundamental cornerstone of international law now, which is very justifiable viewed from one perspective, Mm -hmm. is the permanent sovereignty over natural resources. Every state has the permanent sovereignty over natural resources, a fundamental tenet of international law, as it should be in a world of nation states grounded in sovereignty um, <laughs> that emerged out of the ashes of the Second World War. And sector.
1: neoliberal that it is. Uh, imagine if the owner of that coal was the planet.
0: Or the inhabitants of the planet collectively. I don't know how you would manage it if it's exclusively the planet.
1: Well, we have we have seen some examples of legal personhood given to natural features, haven't we?
0: Absolutely, but there's always a human involved.
1: I mean, of course. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, the planet aware of itself.
0: It's, but if we it's had... Decidedly a,
1: human, if, isn't it?
0: If we had an international custodial arrangement yeah. in place that was comprised of humans, you know, Equit- equitably balanced group of people who are responsible for managing that, it's very doable, right? Very, very doable.
1: And, look, I, I think that's where I'd like to focus um, our next podcasts on and, and, and see if we can identify how we can transition from uh, a, the government of a nation state to... Um, having sovereignty over primary resources and having the planet itself with that sovereignty. Now, that's going to mean that the chopping down of a forest here or the draining of a swamp there is going to be subject to planetary oversight right? and policing. And so I think that's how we should be looking at what now is the uh, biodiversity laws from the UN, which can be the natural law of the planet.
0: Right, because now we have exactly the reverse situation. We do. right The exploitation in any country of whatever fossil fuel we're talking about has a direct impact Mm -hmm. on on people in areas where that resource does not exist, particularly in the form of... Climate change, melting ice in the exactly. Arctic, melting tundra, the list goes on. It doesn't. You know? it. So, in fact, I've spoken to uh, one of our future um, uh, interviewees on our podcast coming up, and that's Professor David Petrasic of uh, the University of Ottawa in Canada, and who's and, um, done a lot of research on this very question of of treating um, natural entities mountains, rivers, streams, lakes, as the planet. legal persons. And look, it's home planet, Scott. Um, and building um, I mean, a home the, planet.
1: If, if we are going to take this to its natural conclusion, then it's home planet, just like it was the home tree in Avatar, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. home planet is worth protecting. And we are all Indigenous. No planet, no people. We are all Indigenous I mean, to our home planet. We're you know? all I mean,
0: Indigenous to the planet, but we're not all First Nations. That's for sure. So, um, thanks everybody for listening today. Um, let us know what you think. You can either write a comment, uh, below, or you can send emails to info at onenessworld.org. Um, and you can just express yourselves and, and, uh, Let us know your ideas and your thoughts on these themes. And before we go, I'd just like to announce that we have some really amazing guests coming um, in the next couple of months. Um, First, we have uh, Dr. Volker Turk, um, who is the Deputy United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. He'll be talking to us from Geneva about his role in, um, well, managing ultimately 65 million refugees and internally displaced persons around the world and and what his thoughts are about um, the next step in the evolution of the United Nations and the system that governs all of us. Um, We're we're also very lucky to have uh, Liam Suckling coming on an uh, an upcoming episode. This is a truly amazing world explorer, mountain climber, adventurer, who's in the process of climbing uh, each, Uh, the top highest five peaks in every continent in the world and who's already very much a world citizen and uh, and who very much shares the vision of of oneness world so he'll be telling us about some of his adventures he's just gotten back to australia for a brief interlude on his uh i think a hundred and twenty thousand kilometer journey that he's on now with a with a group called onesky.earth and he's just climbed, uh, I think four of the highest peaks in Antarctica, none of which were ever climbed by human beings before. Wow. So he has some amazing, um, stories to tell and a whole range of other guests are, are coming as well. So once again, thank you very much for listening and hope you enjoyed it and uh, see you next time. Bye for now. Bye.